Mythology and folklore play a vital role in our experience as humans. Gods and goddesses, heroes and heroines, and the magical creatures of the world have always fueled our storytelling traditions. We get lost and found in the myths and tales of the past, and their relevance never seems to fade, continually reinvented in new cultural forms, novels, poems, drama, television, and music. This book is important for its um, ambiguities and for the, for the discussion, mm-hmm. for, the, for the various points that you can chew on after mm-hmm. you put it down. Um, and this book, ideas and, and characters in this book might have a way of coming back to you at very unexpected times, um, which it has always done. Today, a conversation about Grace Kupfer's book, Legends of Greece and Rome, a 19th century retelling of these legends in the form of a children's book that continues to resonate in the 21st century. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Vasuda Bardawaj. Vasuda was suggested as a guest by Christine Alderman, who appeared on episode H1. Vasuda is a wise and caring voice and truly a fascinating person, as you will hear in today's episode. We recorded this conversation in October of 2021. Okay, well, let's then let's, you know, let's dive in. I, I always like to start there. This is, you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is the history of people's reading life. So just start talking to me about that and how, how you think about it. Right. Um, so, so I'm Indian. Uh-huh. And, um, English was the fourth language that I learned. Um, and I started learning it when I started going to preschool, which was around, uh, I think it was uh, four, maybe when I, uh, or, or three or four when I started. Um, and um, the uh, English was basically limited to, to the context of school uh, for the first couple of years. Um, and I think I, when I was around five, my, my father realized that I actually understood <laughs> English when he was having a conversation with someone else. And I, I used a word that he didn't think I knew. But basically, um, uh, the many of the stories that we read in class or the teacher would read to us, I was in a Catholic school, um, typically had um, characters named Tom and Anne, and that was not the, the, the kind of name that I associated with, with the world around me. Mm-hmm. But English was the only, only language that I knew how to read and write. Um, and Basically, I actually started reading for pleasure when I was eight, uh, seven or eight. 
Um, and I started with comic books. Um, and when I say comic books, it's, it, I, I mean uh, comic books that are very, very Indian. Um, so there's this uh, line of books called Amar Chitra Katha, which is basically Hindu mythology and uh, Indian history. Uh, well, not just Hindu mythology, mythology, South Asian mythology in general. Um, and a lot of history and historical figures. So that was sort of my, my major reading. And then I started to read uh, things like Enid Blyton, which were um, British. Uh, in, I, I don't know if you've heard of Enid Blyton. Uh, I think she's much more uh, uh, a British and Commonwealth thing <laughs> figure. Um, so she wrote children's books. Um, and um, uh, had um, this series called Famous Five and Secret Seven. And um, these were mystery series with, where, where children solved mysteries and um, mm -hmm. very exciting. And I used to read them under the bed covers with mm -hmm. a, a flashlight when I should have been sleeping. Um, and um, it, it, was, it was all very interesting and everything, but... Um, it was always like I was reading about a world that was very different from mine. So it was very much escape reading, unless I read the comic books, which were which had stories that were also part of a big part of the oral culture uh, that I inhabited. Then one in in the summer between um, third and fourth grade, or fourth and fifth grade, basically one of the summers, um, I I started. Um, trying to read everything that was there in the local public library. And I came across this book, which was The Legends of Greece, Greece and Rome, and it blew my mind because it there was so much in here that was familiar to me um, that, um, but familiar, but different. And for the first time I was reading something in English, which, um, I felt like I had a connection to. And that I think in a lot of ways. So, so in terms of my reading life, that, that, in, uh, that has um, influenced a lot of my interests. I really got interested in folklore and mythology because of this book um, and started actively um, reading more about even, even Hindu mythology because that was something that... Um, I, I knew about, but I hadn't actually read about. Um, even now, like I, I, I read a lot, but I tend to have uh, genres that I fall back to because these are things that I tend to think most about um, and um, find cross-cultural connections. And it, it gives me a way to talk to my son about cross-cultural connections too, mm -hmm. um, because, because he's growing up here, which again, for him is a completely different experience. So it's again, familiar yet alien. Did you, I wanna go back to like reading these comic books about Hindu mythology and, and Indian history. Um, you were reading those in English? Mm -hmm. Yes. I English was literally, was and is the main language that I read. Um, in, in terms of uh, Indian languages, the only other language that I can read is Hindi. Um, 
and it's not my first language it's it's not my native language it's my fifth language and i speak it fairly fluently but i i it's 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 not easy for me to read in hindi so i i i read in english hindi is a lot more alien to me than english is mm-hmm. so you you were talking about how when you were a young child you would you know read under the covers and you know you were kind of drawn to these books about mythology or the mystery books and stuff like that did you grow up in a household that was uh very actively a reading household or is this just something that you ended up taking up as part of your lived experience so that's a that's a good question and i was thinking of that earlier because um, the the way i grew up um my my parents never read to me mm-hmm. they, they each read individually mm-hmm. they just never read to me it was not a thing um uh it, it it never even occurred to them the only time they ever read to me was during the pujas the 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 prayers around any any uh, religious celebrations then i would have to sit down and then they would read to me and i did not want to be there sitting and listening <laughs> um so so um reading for pleasure was definitely something that was there in our household um reading for pleasure or just reading as an activity but it was not something that um was ever uh, actively encouraged and my my brother liked reading the newspaper but he didn't go out of his way to look for books to read um he's much more of a reader now than he was back in our childhood um i think i read a lot more than um anyone in our household just because um my brother's a lot older than me i was a very protected child and i stayed home for much of the time and books were my companions essentially mm-hmm. so um as you you said that you kind of fall back into particular genres uh of mm-hmm. things that you like to read is that mythology and folklore is it mystery like how did you sort of Yeah, tell me the trajectory of like what it is that you grew interested in in terms of your reading and how how you keep that up as an adult. So that might take us through teenage years or anything, you know. So, um I love I love mythology and folklore. Um okay. I also love um oh the the English classics. And and this is, again is is um I think um a legacy from my mother because she she uh, even now um loves reading things like Jane Austen and um <laughs> and uh Wuthering Heights and she she used to talk to me about them when I was not interested in reading them and then when I grew old enough to read them I would bring them home and then the books would disappear because she would be reading them uh-huh. uh, so uh, um we, we that that was something that um, she and i often did so meal times on school days would often be uh, i would be home by 3 o'clock i'd be having a late lunch and i would be sitting at the dining table with a book propped up in front of me and reading it while i ate and my mom would be doing exactly the same thing um other than that i also really like fantasy um 
I, I also like things like Sherlock Holmes. So, so again, yeah. So, so Sherlock Holmes is interesting in 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 terms of um, where I place it in in my mind in terms of genres because it's classic literature, it's mystery, but it's also sort of like got this really interesting um, tension about how it represents the East. Um, so the idea of um, um, domination and power and how how that is maintained and um, um, undermined in in some cases that's that's another thing that I find fascinating. I love Agatha Christie's and I think I I read a lot of Agatha Christie's. I I, I read all of them. Um, I made it a mission to read all of them through my teens. Um, and uh, I also reread them several times in part, not because I read them only for the mystery, but um, every time, depending on what age I am, I seem to discover a lot more um, in the books. So um, I understood a lot about uh, the effects of war in Europe. Uh, when I was reading Agatha Christie in high school, um, and um, sometimes I, I, I see my son doing the same thing where he picks up a book, he's reading something, um, does a quick fact check uh, on the internet, and then uh, he, he, he comes up with this random trivia and I'm like, hey, how do you know that? And he's like, oh, I read this in this book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I used to do when I was that age. So this book you read when you were a child. I know that you said that you wanted to read it again or you wanted to talk about it because you you felt like it was such an important book. Yes. To to your development. So so let's get into it. Legends of Greece and Rome by Grace Kupfer. And I think this book was published in like 1930 or 1932. So t- so tell me why did this book stick with you? Why did you choose this book to talk, like, to have me read, uh, to have us discuss? I read this particular book when I was around 10 or 11. So in terms of books that stayed with me, this book, I think, just sort of transformed how I felt in terms of my connectedness, my personal connectedness to what I read. Um, And... In, in that sense, I, I, I recommended this book to you just because it seemed to be such um, a weird little, weird choice, um, weird in an interesting way, odd in an interesting way for a, a 10-year-old South Asian girl uh, to, to latch onto and to, and to carry through her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and... This book, I think, was stands out to me because unlike the, the stories about Tom and Anne and George that I was reading, um, the, the characters in these books were familiar. The names were different, 
but pretty much every character, um, all of the gods, all of the heroes, the, uh, and the ways in which they were talked about, um, the, the victims even, were all really familiar culturally, um, even though they were from a different part of the world. And that was something that I had never experienced before. How do you, how do you see these stories matching up with, I don't know if we want to say just uh, Hindu mythology or Indian mythology. Do, do you think that the, you said it seemed familiar to you? Why did it seem familiar as a child? So as a child, it seemed fam very familiar because a there was a whole pantheon of gods. It was not monotheistic. Um, mm -hmm. And the gods were, were essentially just humans with divine power. Mm. Um, and they were very flawed. Uh, they were emotional, basically. And this is something that's characteristic of, of Hindu mythology. Uh, the, the idea of uh, a god, and here I'm not, I'm not saying of, of God in general in, in the sense of uh, a higher power, but the idea of gods or godliness, it was more that of um, an abstract personification or a personification of uh, abstract human experience. Um, and every, every part of human experience can be found in either a particular deity who represents that experience or a particular uh, God who also goes through a similar experience. And there was almost a one-on-one -on -one, um, a correspondence um, to figures that I had grown up hearing stories about from my mom who, who loved, uh, who loves uh, Hindu mythology um, and uh, the, the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon. So, so Jupiter or Zeus have Indra uh, as the, the uh, Hindu uh, equivalent. Um, Agni is the god of fire and is, uh, there's, there's Neptune, who is Varuna, and there's the, like different figures. You, you have like almost exact, um, an exact equivalent in Hindu mythology. Um, and then also figures like uh, Hercules. Uh, Indian culture, uh, like Hindu, Hindu mythology has a very similar figure uh, named Bhima, who, who's this individual with superhuman strength. Um, who who performs a lot of heroic acts and who's who's not perfect. I mean, he's he's a human, but he's blessed by the gods. Um, he's connected to the gods in some way. And um, the idea of of um, of the earth and the cycles of the earth. Oh yes, connected um, to um, to. The, to gods, uh, there being a god of the earth. I mean, that is a, a very central um, um, part of whatever form of Hinduism. And again, I use the word Hinduism every time and I'm like not entirely comfortable with it because Hinduism can be anything from um, a philosophical belief in the divinity of everything that is very close to atheism to a, a a literal um, um, 
idea of some particular uh, God being the ultimate uh, power. But um, basically this, this notion of nature being divine, um, nature being uh, God, is, is also a central part of um, Hinduism. And for me, that's also something that's, that's very personal because my name actually means the, the, the earth, um, the goddess of the earth. So, so Vasudha is uh, the goddess of the earth. So, so the first time I read the story about Ceres and Persephone, I was like, oh my goodness. And I was so excited that I went and told my mother, did you know there was such a story? And she was like, no, I didn't, as a matter of fact. And she, she sat and read the story with me. And that was, that was fun. So that's one of the stories that most resonates with you in the book or? or... Um, no, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories. I remember it being one of my favorite stories. Um, but it was just the fact that hey, there is this other culture that, that, ha- that personifies the, the earth as a divine being um, and um, where nature is actively worshipped in its different forms. I mean, there's a sun god, there's a sun god that, that Hindus have, um, there's a god of the moon and all of that basically was was um, a really important part and i think it also was really big that um, there were these ideas of divine curses and divine rewards um, which again part of every every um, um, every story in hindu mythology there there is either either a curse in action or a reward um, uh, that's that's being sought. Um, so so all of that basically just fascinated me and blew my mind. And I, I remember then starting to look for more of these. And uh... yeah, I I have to say I really enjoyed the book so much for several reasons. One was that I I, I do remember in college taking a Greek and Roman mythology course, um, which was kind of part of the standard curriculum, or it was like a elective course that you could take to fulfill a kind of, you know, whatever it was in our English curriculum that you should know something about world mythology or, or world folklore or whatever. And I had taken a course, but um, I hadn't really read a lot of that stuff in probably 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm going through and, and in my margins, I, ha- I had written like several times, oh yeah, I remember this story <laughs> or, I, or I see how this story has really impacted even ongoing storytelling in our cultures today, mm-hmm. right? So even like the little poems that are included in, in the book, I I had written by one of the poems, I was like, oh, I'd forgotten how much, particularly I think like 19th century British poetry mm-hmm. is really influenced by a lot of these old Greek and Roman myths and, and things of that nature.
why do you think um i'm just i'm just curious like I, i wrote in the margins of this book that i think these stories are important but i wonder why it is that we continue to return to these particular stories that are kind of rooted in Greece and Rome and that we don't take up more world mythology in our cultural knowledge. I'm thinking particularly here of one of my favorite writers right now is Marlon James. Mm-hmm. And Marlon James talks about how he's being very intentional about trying to raise people's consciousness about African folklore. Um, and he's using African folklore in order to write his, you know, his books and things of that nature. And so I just wonder, you know, as somebody who talks and teaches about the dominance of world Englishes, not that Greece and Rome were English speaking places, but why do you think these particular mythologies have such a staying power over other world mythologies? Or is that just a U.S. based thing? I don't know. I don't know that I would say that uh, that these have uh, a staying power in all contexts. It would mm-hmm. definitely be uh, uh, an ang- anglophone thing, mm-hmm. uh, because um, I mean, for me, it these have power um, because I had a, a similar structure. Uh, or a similar uh, body, a similar repertoire of stories um, that they connected to. Yeah. Um, so for me, these have power because in, in a way they were my, my conduit or access point to connect to uh, the world, to, to the, the European and American world. Mm-hmm. But um, in, in terms of, the stories themselves. I mean, again, the cultural context, I think, makes a huge difference. I mean, if if you went to South Asia, most people, I mean, I, I doubt that you would come across many people who, who are interested in or would know anything mm. about um, uh, Greek and lo- Roman legends, even though uh, a lot of people are English speaking. Um, instead, they would be um, more uh, able to talk to you about the the the, the Hindu epics, the the mythology. The Mahabharata has has like pretty much very very comparable uh, stories, like uh, the the story of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, for instance. Yeah, um, as uh, Hindu mythology has the story of Savitri and Satyavan. Except that in um, in Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus is the one who goes to bring back his beloved, and in uh, the story of Savitri and Satyavan, Satyavan Savitri, the the woman, goes to bring back her husband, and she also manipulates things so that she gets a lot of other um, um, uh, a lot, lot of other rewards for the good of the kingdom. The, the other uh, point that really struck me um, was the purpose of storytelling um, mm-hmm. in different cultures um, and, and in different contexts also. Um, so 
in I think I think what you say about and and I think both of these ideas the uh, the place of God um, in um, monotheism versus polytheism is also related to uh, the the function of storytelling in terms of um, um, uh, in, in terms of mythologies or or religious stories um, and. Um, so, so definitely, I think I think um, a, a shared feature of Hindu mythology uh, and um, Greek mythology is that that um, there is a constant discussion of crises, um, uh, crises of faith, but not not exactly faith. It's 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 basically a crisis in a relationship between. Um, the, the holder of power and uh, the subject. Um, uh -huh. And the, the, the crises play out in very different ways, I think, um, depending on uh, whether you're part of a monotheistic um, faith or, or uh, polytheistic. And I think, I think the reason this is sort of um, standing out to me so much is because just last week, um, I spoke to my class. We 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 discussed an article on uh, the history of the introduction of English literary education in India, oh. um, and how uh, texts were selected for uh, a secular English curriculum, with the explicit purpose of uh, teaching uh, Christian values uh, under the guise of secular um, reading. Um, and this was done um, basically because um, the, the difference in education that existed in England, where the upper classes learned, uh, studied uh, classical works, uh, basically Greek and Latin works, and the lower classes uh, studied religious works, um, could not be transferred oh. as is to the British, uh, the colonial context. They did not want to use that in India. Because the the people who were who were going to these institutions of higher education were upper class, but they sure as hell were not going to be encouraged to read uh, Greek and Latin works because they were secular. They were all discussing basically all of these these um, conflicts of power um, in in different forms and and um, social um, challenges to social order, so to speak. Um, and um, that is what they, they had traditionally also been learning when they were looking at um, the, the, the Sanskrit or, or Arabic or, or Farsi works uh, at that time. Um, and they, they couldn't also use the, the um, Christian religious education for the upper classes because there would be pushback um, and that could be potentially unsettling for, for uh, the, the British Indian government. So, so because of that, like it's it's sort of at the forefront of my mind that um, this purpose of storytelling becomes very different uh, depending on context, depending on um, the 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 cultural background and the cultural baggage that you come into a situation with, um, and and that's that's one of the things that you end up seeing in in 
in this collection, I think. go off in a slightly different direction also makes me think about uh, uh, what to me always felt like one point where there was a fundamental difference in in both of the literatures where was um, what women did uh, I, yes let's talk about this please <laughs> yes yes <laughs> say more yes yeah, so so um Eurydice in, in, in this particular collection, Eurydice is just like this flat figure who is beloved by Orpheus. The story is all about Orpheus and she is loved by him, lost by him. Uh, and that's, that's the, the be all and end all of her existence. And then there's the Pandora figure. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's the Juno figure uh, who, the the first time that that she that Grace Kupfer mentions uh, Juno, she says she is jealous. Yes, and I remember like that, sort of totally colored how I expected to see her, and every time she appeared, I would be like, "See, she is that." And even Minerva in in this collection in the story with Arachne is shown as this jealous jealous god or goddess and yeah it, it just yeah, yeah I, I I wanted you know I, I'm so glad you mentioned this this is like one of the things I put on the notes page um because right away in the beginning of the book uh I was questioning is this a feminist text and, and the reason is because on page 20 Mm -hmm. uh, Kupfer writes this kind of long quote, which I'm going to read because I think it'll help inform the discussion. She says, quote, in the faraway days before men had learned many truths, which they now know, they believed that for a long time man lived by himself without companionship of wife or sister. And sometimes when vexed by their fair companions or tormented, it may be by their own selfishness, they would invent stories telling that woman was sent upon the earth to bring evil into their lives. Evidently, they did not wish to remember the many blessings which they owed to her, end quote. So I, I wrote down, I wrote in the margin, I said, oh, this, is a, this book is a feminist text. But then not only a few pages later is when she introduces Juno and she says, you know, Juno is this jealous and she's painted terribly in the book. Yes. Terribly. Yes. Why? why? What, what is the role of women? Exactly. It, it, and even, even the introduction of Pandora, I, I don't know if that stood out to you. Um, yeah. Where, where she, she draws this explicit compa comparison to Eve, which I totally missed when I was 10, because I, I didn't know the story of Genesis. I, I knew the story of Jesus, mm -hmm. but I did not know anything from the Old Testament. So I missed that reference. But it was like, yes. So, so there's this idea of this first woman who brings all the troubles with her because she cannot be obedient. 
Mm-hmm. And and that really bothered me. <laughs> Although the Pandora story, it does stick out to me, and I'm going to see if I could see if I can find the Pandora story. I mean, one of the things I did like about the way that she told that story in this book was that she seemed to suggest that even though Pandora had opened this box and had let out all of these things, that that part of what that did was also create the idea of hope. Right. Yes. That it, so you know, she did unleash all this terribleness into the world, but she also released this idea that we might be able to have hope. And of course, I can't find the story now, but. Um, um, in my book, it's on page um, eight. Oh, well, it's very I'm, early. Yes, it's very early. It's uh, the story named Two Gifts from the Gods and What Came of Them. Yes. Okay. That's right. So in my book, that's on page 20. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because this is the story where the quote just came from. But yeah, uh, at the end of that story, on the very last page, she says, you know, to this day, as a poet has sung, hope springs eternal in the human breast. And man strives against evil and misfortune with courage, born of the hope which Pandora brought from the gods and which happily she preserved for her husband and mankind. And I just wrote, that's a nice way to end the story. Pandora brought hope to the earth, even if she also released a lot of bad things right. by opening the box. Right. And I remember that was, as, as a child, that was one thing that I did. That was the one thing that I did take away that yes, there's also the, the, the figure of hope that she eventually lets out of the box along with the troubles. Uh, but the whole representation of Juno um, and the, the passive way in which most of the, the female figures operate in this um, troubled me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it it also makes me think about um, similar or comparable figures in Hindu mythology. Um, the goddesses typically, um, the powerful ones, are seen as being very powerful, and they 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 don't take any. Um, they don't take. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure about the level of whether uh, um, the swearing was okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to say shit, that's fine too. <laughs> yes, I don't take any shit. Um, and um, it it seemed like the I'm I'm trying to uh, remember where I started this. Yes. Yeah, so so going back to the story of Savitri and Satyavan. Like one of the things, and also the story of Dulcy, one of the things about the the human figure. So there was a distinction in, there's often a distinction in in Hindu mythology between human female figures and the goddesses. And the human or humanized figures typically were expected to be more obedient um, and a very, very, uh, focused on the well-being of the husband, the children, uh, and the broader community. Uh, the the goddesses, on the other hand, were just straight out powerful. So so you have these these female uh, goddesses 
who are feared by all, who are not malicious, they're never malicious, but the figure of Juno is, is so actively malicious in, in these stories that that, I, I never could quite understand why that was. I couldn't either. And, I, you know, I, I guess I, you don't really hear, or at least I don't remember reading a lot about you know, Zeus's wife or Jupiter's wife. Like, I don't remember a lot of these stories. And I know recently there's been a lot of novels and other things coming out that have been kind of retellings of, you know, some of these old Greek and Roman mythologies from different viewpoints, different standpoints and stuff. And I, I, I just wonder if anyone has written about Juno. Do you know? Like, what is the backstory? Why is she... Because it's not evident in this book why she's jealous, why she's overly malicious, and and actually I would say quite violent in a lot of ways. Like you know she's she's killing people and turning them into mm-hmm. different figures. You know the the, the whole shape shifting thing. I was just really struck by that. Yeah, I I haven't read anything uh, that would help me explain it. Um, the the one part of me um, wonders after having read like other other uh, versions of many of the myths growing up is whether it was because Zeus and Jupiter were these horribly philandering figures who I mean left to herself she probably wouldn't have wanted to be with at all mm-hmm. and and I I don't know I mean I it's something that I, I, I wish, I wish I could provide closure to that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's something that the book makes you want to go and like explore more is just this idea of like why Juno in particular, but, but even some of the other female gods um, or, or the, or the female characters that end up getting turned into these, you know, there's the Medusa figures and, and the, you know, all of these, uh, Medusa is also the three-headed beast, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're the women. I mean, just all of this kind of gendered stuff in these stories is, is important to think about. It's, it's fascinating to think about it in in a lot of ways. Thing that struck me though was um, uh, one of the things that I had really liked about these stories is the possibility of humans being better than the gods, um, oh. the idea of gods, um, and that I think is most explicit for me in the story of Arachne, where she's weaving this tapestry and, and Minerva comes to challenge her. And eventually it turns out that Arachne's tapestry is so much better. Oh, I never thought about it. So what do you think, what do you think the message is there? What I get out of that story is basically, well, what I get out of the story now as an adult is different from what I got out of it as a child. Okay. As a child, part of me was like, oh shit. I mean, it's it's she she should respect authority. Um 
Which I think the story was very much written in a way that that was about reaffirming authority or or at least uh, at one level saying authority expects to be um, to be respected. Right. I think I think that she uh, she says, you know, she comes down in a different form and she says, you know, you should. You should stop saying all these you know, arrogant things about how you're better, right, Arachne, you should, you know, bow down to the benevolence of, you know, if you do, I think the line is something like, if you do this, she will forgive you. And then Arachne is like, I'm not going to do it. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm Minerva, and I'm going to, we're going to do this, you know, tapestry off or whatever. Yes. And, and then eventually, like, when she, when she makes the better tapestry, I mean, the, the choice she's not even allowed to die when she wants to kill herself to prevent uh, Minerva from punishing her um, and instead she's transformed into this uh, explicitly ugly spider um, that is go- that is forever hanging by a thread mm-hmm. and I mean as a grown-up though when I read that story I'm like wow this is this is actually a really interesting story just because there's so many layers to it. It's about the insecurity of power, uh, the, mm. the, the idea that what you're born as doesn't necessarily mean that you're limited in what you can actually do if you're, if you're good at it or you work at it. Um, it also makes me um, think of a, a quote from Terry Pratchett. I think it's uh, from one of his early books called Equal Rights, um, where he writes that um, it is well known that, why, that a vital ingredient of success is not knowing that what you're attempting can't be done. A person ignorant of the possibility of failure can be a half brick in the path of the bicycle of history. That's that's the Terry Pratchett quote. Uh-huh. So so it's sort of like Arachne had no idea that had no idea that it's well, maybe Arachne did. But in general, I mean the, the whole idea of be besting a god, being better, um winning a, a, a tapestry off against a god, um is something that had never been done before. And she didn't realize that it was not that it was impossible, and therefore went ahead and did it. And of course, she got punished for it, but she went ahead and did it anyway. I mean, it feels like there's there's a lot of power and a lot to think about in that story. And and it's kind of a theme in many stories. I mean, there's this other story. I for, I'm going to forget all of their names, of course, but th- there's another story about music, like. Um, Apollo apparently is like able to play music and, and then there's, you know, he comes down and he has a music competition with one of the, with one of the humans. Who, who is it? Is it, I want to say it's Pan or something, but. I am totally blanking out. Well, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, even the story of Hercules, right. Or yes, whatever, like, Jason and the Golden Fleece. Um, although that story is a little bit different because obviously there's there's a kind of 
evil king involved and he's trying to like save the people and you know all this kind of stuff but so what you're saying is that there's a way that humans can be better than the gods and that might provide us with some level of hope or 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 thinking differently about like our our positionality in relation to the gods right um Right. And, and when you were talking, uh, I was also thinking about Prometheus um, and mm-hmm. his theft of fire and, and everything. And it's, it's sort of, it makes me think even about things like activism um, and mm-hmm. how activism is about posing a challenge to the established way of doing things, um, which doesn't always end well, but does not mean that one is going to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. So I think I think going back to your earlier question about why do these stories have so much appeal, um, in in stories that in in these mythologies, both Indian mythology and and Greek mythology, Roman mythology, stories where you have gods that are challenged by humans um, with varying outcomes. I think I think it's it's they hold so much fascination because it, it, it is about how culturally, how uh, humans seem to have always been thinking about how might one navigate in um, complex situations, uh, complex situations where the, they themselves might be disempowered and how might they actually find workarounds in in situations that um, where they do not have power and are trying to claim power uh, or or claim some portion of power uh, from the gods or from whoever is the holder of that power. One thing about this book that I found very intriguing was that it's purposely designed as a retelling of -hmm. these Greek and Roman myths as kind of fables Mm -hmm. for young children. And and I I wonder, you know, what you think about the fact that Kupfer as as an author decided that she was going to retell these probably much more complicated tales in, in a form that was written fable-like, uh, it, it reads like a book of fables. All the stories are short, you know, four to five pages. They're, they're... So, I mean, what do you think about the form of this book as children's fables and how these stories get, you know, sort of retold in that kind of storytelling form? Well, I, looking back at it uh, as an adult, I think she's done a brilliant job. It's brilliant. I agree. I agree. Just in terms of leaving everything, leaving out everything except the bare essentials. Yeah. Um, It it boils things down to their core while also leaving a lot of substance for discussion. And the fact that I read the stories as a child and that it started an internal dialogue of some sort that clearly has stayed with me like 
30 years later or 35 years later is, is I think a, a testament to its effectiveness um, in, in terms of uh, reaching the audience. But I think also that, that at the time when I was reading it, it was like so many of the other things that I was reading. It was short stories that, that were accessible, um, but not what I liked best about it, because I was also reading, um, uh, I had finished reading Aesop's Fables. I was reading a lot of Andrew Lang's collection of fairy tales. Um, and I was looking at um, uh, the, the Buddhist stories, Jataka, Jataka stories, and um, the Hindu stories of Panchatantra, all of which like have a moral somewhere. <laughs> and these stories did not have an explicit moral. And that was something that I loved about them. So what's your kind of closing thought for listeners about this book, what or what you would tell them? about the importance of this book or, or why they should read it or, or whatever? I would say that this book is important for its um, ambiguities and for the, for the discussion, mm-hmm. for, the, for the various points that you can chew on after mm-hmm. you put it down. Um, and this book, ideas and and characters in this book might have a way of coming back to you at very unexpected times, um, which it has always done. I, I uh, like I said, 30, 35 years on, I, I still I still remember uh, mm-hmm. from this book, and um, I would say that. It would be important also to to go to it, not necessarily thinking of it as being um, the basis for uh, a lot of Western uh, literature and Western civilization, but also as as a point of connection with a lot of work from the East. It's it's the perfect bridge, really. Vasuda grew up in India and has lived most of her adult life in the United States. She also lived for four years in Europe. While she is an academic now, she has been fascinated by folklore, mythologies, and other stories that people tell of themselves for as long as she can remember. You can contact Vasuda via email, vasudab at gmail.com. For listeners of today's show, you might also be interested to know that Grace Kupfer's book is no longer in print, but can be accessed as a PDF through many digital library repositories. Or feel free to email me to request a PDF copy of the text. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at Rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Vasuda. 
we discussed many topics that did not make it into this final edited episode. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolowski, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Keaton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader. Mm-hmm.